HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person who inspires me with their work and how they interact with the world. And today, my guest is a friend, a photographer, and an extraordinary humanitarian, Melanie Tunay. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Dana. What a nice introduction. Thank you. We've known each other for such a long time through all kinds of photo shoots and initiatives that you've done, and I'm really excited about your most recent initiative, which is Treats Help. I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about Treats Help, like what is it and what are you trying to do in this time of COVID? Well, you know, I mean, I'm in in downtown New York City and feel a bit useless. And of course, my work has completely dried up and I'm not a doctor. And I thought to myself, how can I help as I dug in my cupboard for one more sweet thing to please myself. I was reading in the paper and looking at the TV and I I, I was thinking, you know, what's bringing me joy? Well, muffins and cookies. And I thought, well, first of all, all of our bakeries and local little places, we want to help them. I, I know I spoke to one baker and she said, you know, I've got all this stuff in the freezer. And then I thought to myself, well, why don't we hire those bakers with money? Let's start a GoFundMe. Don't know how to do that. We'll figure it out. And so with a group of friends, we just decided to start this fundraising campaign. And what we liked so much about it is that, you know, the money goes straight to the food providers and the food goes to the hospital staff. So it's sort of a win-win. It's Fantastic. I love that you're paying people during this time. It's become a volunteer economy. Everyone really, really wants to help, so they're volunteering their time and money. But as we know, these small businesses can hardly afford to give away their work and the ingredients, and it's it's quite expensive. So tell me what it's like when you drive up to the hospital and you open the hatchback and you bring out the treats. Like, what happens next? Well, we do deliveries all during the week that are direct. UPS, you know, we try to do as, as many as possible. And then once a week, I go. And I, I went originally because I thought, well, I'm asking these other people to go. I need to know what that feels like myself. So when you roll up, you definitely judge the hospital <laughs> because you look and you think, hmm, wow. 
this is insane. There are people milling everywhere. There are, I can't tell you how many people are just standing outside yawning, all the workers. And then, you know, it's also these people's jobs. So when I was speaking to one of the drivers for the ambulance drivers, he said, we're not heroes. This is what we do every day. So we, we come up, I, I let them know, and I, I try not to enter the hospital because A, I don't want to be in the way, and B, I want to keep it as less contact as possible. So usually they come out and meet us, and we try to mix it up. You know, we try to give a variety. Let's say one week it would be a little bit of Empire Bakeries, black and white cookies, and then some Levain, and maybe a Maman cookie and a muffin from another place. And what's the response of the frontline workers? I mean, tremendous. They are so happy. And I get these beautiful letters. And that's the most moving part that I share immediately because this is really a community effort. You know, I can't do this alone. This takes people privately raising money. Stephanie March went on TV. Gail Simmons did a podcast. She read a book to raise money. Judy Wong from um, The Odeon, she put it out on her social media. You know, Anjali got us a grant for $2,500. I mean, it's, it's really a community effort. And the notes really all say how much we sort of brought an uplifting moment to the ER rooms. And I was reading Amanda Clute this morning. Amanda is the editor of Eater. And she was saying working with you made her lift that veil of cynicism. Like, what good is it to give sweets to frontline workers? Like, don't they need a steak or a break or money or, you know, ventilators? And her conclusion was, no, like, actually, they could use some treats. I mean, we all could, right? <laughs> I've gotten a lot of people acting quite cynical, and that doesn't stop me. I've, I've always experienced that in my career. If cynicism got me down, I'd, I wouldn't be anywhere. <laughs> What's the connection between cynicism and success in your photography? Well, I remember when I had the idea to do My Last Supper, the book series, you know, about chefs. Somebody said to me, well, I mean, that's the oldest game in the book. And I, I said, well, if it's been done once, it's, it's worth doing again. You know, I, I, I think every time we approach a piece of work, we do it through our own lens. And that's important to remember because if you have an idea, you have to go with it. And often people won't get it. And not every idea works. Not every idea is successful. But if you have something in you that you want to express or explore, you've got to do it. And my last supper is a fantastic book. I had the pleasure of revisiting some of those images in preparing for this conversation where you photographed 50 chefs and you asked them six questions. And instead of it being about promotion for their restaurant or something that they had to cook or something that their customers wanted, it was really all about them. What did you learn about the heart of the chef working on The Last Supper? Well, you know, those questions were pretty mundane and that was intentional. There was, what would you eat for your last supper? What would you drink? Who would be there? What music would you listen to? Who would clean up? <laughs> that was very telling. <laughs> and I, I thought if I pose the exact same questions to a hundred chefs, they will reveal who they are by how they answer, right? So I remember one was like, well, I like my brand of spaghetti sauce on my brand of pasta in my restaurant. <laughs> and then someone like Paul Bartolotta wrote so many pages, sadly, we had to cut some of it. So it kind of revealed the person. What person did you feel like you knew their, from their outer persona, but then when you got their answers back, you're like, oh my goodness, you are not exactly who I thought you were. There were so many surprises. You know, 
again, as, as you do in your work, you don't want to throw your opinion on someone else. I mean, I was shocked when one chef said, I would like to have orange crush soda or grape soda. And I was like, no, 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 you don't. Are you sure you do? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> like, don't say that. But I didn't, you know, I didn't want to edit. Um, I thought that it was really beautiful the way that some of the chefs dreamed. Danielle Balud wanted to have his at Versailles. And we had such a laugh. We actually went to Versailles. I, I traveled overnight with his tuxedo because at that point he'd only had one and his fancy shoes. And he was already in Lyon with his parents. So I met him in Paris. And, you know, I liked the dreaming aspect. And then there were funny things. I remember Jacques Pepin wanted so many fancy things, many that I hadn't even heard of, along with a hot dog. I'm wondering what the connection between the photographs that you take and the humanitarian within you. What's that connection? You know, I I remember when I first moved to New York and I would be invited to things, you know, fancy benefits, which I couldn't afford. And thankfully, sometimes I was a guest. But I, I, I remember thinking, you know, this is not my place. I don't have that kind of money to be able to help that way. I can help with my work. My absolute biggest victory, I would say, in this arena was I was at a food bank dinner, which is the um, charity in New York, which you know very well, which they not only have a food bank, but they help many people that go there with their taxes or how to prep for an interview. It's a really wonderful organization, but I thought that their advertising was terrible. So you know how I can be. I called up the CEO and I said, can we have a drink, please? And I said, look, you're about to turn 30. I will open up my Rolodex, which, you know, is pretty good because only because I've been in this town for such a long time. And let's create an ad campaign where we photograph 30 people that have really given a lot to your organization. I'll do this pro bono and we'll have this massive advertising campaign. And we did. It was all over. It was on buses. It was in Times Square. We had the, an amazing roster from Susan Sarandon to Kevin Bacon. Um, Tony Bourdain was part of it. There were so many incredible people part of it. And we raised $5 million. And that I could never <laughs> write a check for. When I think of most of your work, you're taking pictures of people. What made you gravitate to shooting people? I'm drawn to people. And I, I remember when I started somebody said to me, the most important thing you can do is stay out of the photograph. And I didn't know what they meant. And, and they said, well, you know, when you look at like Tom Cruise on the cover of Vanity Fair, now I'm dating myself, you look at that and you say, wow, look at what Annie Leibovitz got Tom Cruise to do. Don't do that. You try to see and let the person come through. That's what I try to do every single time. And I succeed sometimes and I fail sometimes. But to try to let the person come through and show through is, is my absolute number one MO. Why do you choose invisibility and sort of honoring the person rather than, let's say, turning photography into an art practice? Well, I mean, I do, my work has changed as have the times. I mean, remember when I started out, I shot with a Hasselblad and had my own darkroom and film. So there's been a huge metamorphosis in the actual technique of my business. You know, I mean, I had to learn digital. I had to learn a computer. While that changed, so did my work. And I think that what's important for me and it's even what I'm doing during this quarantine is variety. For example, some nights I eat in one room, some nights I eat in the other room, some nights I watch TV, some nights I read. It's the same thing with my work. You know, I'm working currently on three different projects and 
When I feel the moment, they get the attention. You've photographed really, really famous people, medium famous people, and I'm sure some not famous at all people. What have you learned about humanity in photographing musicians, chefs, writers, the range of people who are well-known? Wow, that's a big question, Dana. (laughs) If I could just call up a person and ask them if I could photograph them, no matter if it was Obama or my dentist who's being profiled. And I think the only difference is there's sometimes a lot of fuss in between them and me. That by the time the person arrives, there could have been so many layers of people and demands and clothing. And, you know, that by the time I get there, they're kind of nervous. I mean, I started as a photojournalist. I moved to Paris thinking I was going to be Henrietta Cartier-Bresson. And the closest I got seriously was Henri Cartier-Bresson's grandchild or something was in my photography class. And when I was coming out of the dark room, I, it's so dark and it's difficult to adjust for your eyes so quickly. And I knocked him over I, and I was like, you know what? Time to get back to New York. <laughs> like, you're not going to last here. I, I prefer to just keep it simple. I like to make my work look like it's simple. It isn't. I put so much effort into a photograph, even if I've just got my camera. But I want to make it look simple so that they feel at ease so that we can connect. And what do you feel is the easiest way for you to make that connection? I know sometimes you have three minutes to connect. Sometimes you have a half an hour. Sometimes you have half a day. Sometimes you get to travel to Versailles. Sometimes I'm like near the dumpster in the alley. Oh, I think that's the special sauce that you can't, um, you know, you can't explain. I think that's just looking into somebody else's eyes and being like, look, I'm here too. I've got a job to do. Um, Meet me halfway. You've said um, in the past that chefs are some of your favorite people to photograph because they'll try anything. And I just wanted to know, do other people not want to try anything? And how far will chefs go? I mean, when I started photographing chefs, that was really in a big moment in my career. I had a column in Vanity Fair. I had New York Magazine covers regularly. I was super busy. And I got this commission in 2002 with Gourmet Magazine. And they said, photograph nine chefs and just do whatever you want. And so I thought, all right. Well, I went to the butcher and I bought Mario Batali, a link of sausages and a big kawabi cabbage and put it on his head and he did it. And I couldn't believe what I saw. And I think it was because at that moment, celebrity was so big and people were surrounding themselves with teams. But most of these chefs, you just sort of called up. I read that you you cold called these chefs. You'd call a restaurant and you weren't in the industry the way you are today where anyone you call would be like, oh my God, I get to be photographed by Melanie Janae. That's amazing. But your balls to do that, I just admire. So what happened? You would like pick up the phone, call a restaurant. Hey, can I have the chef's email? And then what happened? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I did. In fact, my most difficult person to get, well, two. The first one was Jean-Georges. And I heard that his contract up at Columbus Circle required him to sit at the bar twice a week for an hour. And I went so many times to that bar at Columbus Circle with a little packet waiting for him. And in the packet was my blad, which was the example of the book. And I just said, we be in my book. And it was definitely very hard. And my number one helper of all of this was actually Anthony Bourdain. At my wedding, we were in India, and I said to him, I have this idea for chefs. I want to do this book, and I think that it would be nice to combine all the chefs. Because when you go to the bookstore, you know, Emeril has a book, and blah, blah, blah has a book. Why don't I do one book with all the chefs? 
And he said, it's such a good idea. I'll write the forward. And I was like, oh, that's fine. You don't need to write the forward. Like, because you just got like a book, you know, it's not going to really help. He's like, I think it will help. And I was like, okay, okay. And he took me around to so many restaurants and made me, and I wish I could find them. I've been looking for them. There, there was one particular moment at the restaurant Prune where they had paper covering on the tables and he made a, a genealogy. It was all the chefs that I needed to know. It was like, well, Ferran Adria led to Jose Andreas. And, you know, then I would just, I called them and then I would say, I mean, the most difficult, second most difficult was Marco Pierre White, who I finally got and is on the cover of My Last Supper 2. But that was so difficult to get to him. And that had my publisher who published Kitchen Confidential and published Marco's book basically begged him. And why do you think he was reluctant? And why was he the holdout? I mean, the irony is we're super good friends. I just spoke to him yesterday. I don't know. I think he was probably nervous and didn't know what this was. I mean, I remember having the book pitches and people said to me, well, are there going to be photographs of restaurants? And I said, no. Are there going to be still lifes of food? I said, no. I remember I had 11 meetings and I held it at Barbudo. I said, you come to me, which was so ballsy. I can't even. I just said, look, here is a... my idea, and a lot of them walked away. I think I got three bids out of 11. They were like, what is this? Uh, something that also seems a thread in your personal and professional work is persistence. I mean, Melanie, you just don't give up. And when everyone believes you're a photographer, it's hard to stand out. So how do you perceive the world now where everyone's a photographer? Often when people introduce me, Maybe until the last five years or so, people would call me a food photographer, which I think is a great disservice to the great food photographers out there because I don't shoot food and I I hadn't shot food. And as you know, as being at the helm of a magazine, you know, times got to the moment where it was like, shoot the food and shoot the person or grab a shot of this dish or grab a shot of that dish. And I was looking through Instagram and I thought, wow, look at all these amazing people have these plates and the sunlight and look at this food photography. I can't beat them. So why don't I join them? Let me see what I can do with food. So I picked 14 things or 15 things that I like in New York. And I literally texted the chef or called the chef and said, may I please buy a plate of oysters from Ignacio at Estella or actually Cafe Ultra Paradiso. May I come by early and let me see what I will do with this food. And I went on my own on my bicycle with one camera, no lights, nothing. And then I went over to Prune and I said, can I have a Negroni? And I ended up splashing the Negroni all over the place. And I went to La Bernadette and said, can I have one of those delicious, two of those delicious eggs? And I remember I was standing on a table with the egg in my hand, throwing it to smash it on a plate when Eric Repair walked in the room. And he said, oh no, oh no, what are you up to now? Oh no, I don't even want to (laughs) know. And I created the series, Don't Play With Your Food which was to me a personal, very personal project that all of a sudden I thought, I have a really nice collection of food photography. Um, We're gonna take a a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna hear more from Melanie about photography and inspiration. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, 
The focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total Food Service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at totalfood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at totalfood.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest, as you know, is Melanie Junet, who's an exceptional photographer and humanitarian. Melanie, you have this burning desire to continue to innovate and follow your own dreams. Is it sort of lonely in that process? Is it exciting? Like, what's it it like to be inside the dream of coming up with different ideas? Very frustrating. And that's uh, one of the downsides of persistence <laughs> because I want answers fast and I know they don't come. You know, you sit down to write something and it just doesn't flow. And then one day it flows. I do keep a pad next to my bed and I get a lot of ideas in the night. It's sort of like a photograph. Let's say I'm coming to photograph you and I walk in and I see something. It's glaringly obvious to me what I need to do. The, the road to getting there is always difficult. I can see it. I just... I'm impatient to do it. I'm curious, like the impatience is between the concept and the execution because there's so much legwork that goes on or it's the marinating of ideas. It's getting the idea right. It's it's that things pop into my head and I, I find it very torturous between the initial idea and when you know that you've gotten it right. And that journey can take a really long time or it can take no time. And at my advancing age... I try to just let it lie until it's ready. So you say that you wait for the idea to be right. Do you believe that in art there is like a right idea and a wrong idea? Well, that's the hell of it. No, but I know that when I, I can tell when I'm when something is right for me to start. I can tell that I'm on the right track. Maybe that's a better way to put it. How can you tell? I don't know. It's just a gut instinct. And what's the first creative project that you remember doing? Well... I mean, I don't know if you'd call it creative, but I remember when I was five, I used to be really upset because I heard that the starving people in India, the kids didn't have underwear. This is, I've never told this story actually. And I had, I had a Holly Hobby sewing machine and I, I would cut up my clothes and make underwear for the kids. <laughs> I remember my mother was like, wait, what? And I, I mean, it wasn't like my everyday clothes. I cut up some, I found some you know, stuff around the house. I guess I must have used dish towels. And I remember she she looked at the, and she said, what is this? And I said, this is um, underwear for all the children in India who don't have underwear. And she said, all right, well, we're going to package it up and send it. And I remember she packaged it up and, and pretended to send it. Um, that is a beautiful, beautiful story. What was the first thing you photographed with a camera, any camera? Well, I wasn't, I'm not one of these people that has a million cameras. People always say, oh, do you have a picture of you when you were little with a camera? I had a disc man, but nobody, if you went to talk to anyone, they wouldn't say, oh, Melanie was always taking pictures. And the first camera you were shooting with professionally was a, was a Hasselblad? Actually, I had a Nikon 2020. And now I'm a, a Canon girl, so I defected. But I, I, yes, my first camera, I bought it at um, in Seattle at Glazier's Camera Shop when I was a photo assistant. Because I actually, when I left Paris, I thought, I can't survive. I, I had 
one of my jobs was to collect the film at the airports that these stringers had photographed. So they'd be like at war and I'd pick it up and I'd have to take it. And one of the photojournalists stopped at two different places, you know, two different publications, basically. And I thought, wait, why are you giving your film to two different places? And he said to make more money. And I thought, oh man, photojournalism is not for me. And I moved back to New York and I realized I didn't know anything about studio lighting. So I got a job over where Barbudo was in that photo studio. And I, I said, hi, I want to work here. And I saw your name in a magazine. Madonna had her sex book party here. I bet this is the center of New York. Can I have a job here? And they said, yep, how's $8 an hour? And I said, great. And I was rich. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I feel like people who are listening might be struck as I am, by your gumption, which is different from persistence, your unfiltered ability to ask for what you want. It doesn't mean you always get it, but to ask for it. How do you think other people can adopt that? I feel like that's the difference between opportunity and lack of opportunity. If you don't ask, you don't get. But if you're too afraid to ask, then you really get nothing. Well, that's such an interesting thing because I don't feel like I do do that. And that's scary. <laughs> you do. I, I think I remember when I was doing the country music book and I, I asked Dolly Parton to be part of it. And there was really no reason that she shouldn't have been because it was a really good lineup. And I did such a lazy ask. I don't even know if I knew how I was asking or what. And they wrote back to me and they said something like, you know, you only get one ask. And I thought, I think that's really worth noting. And I, I still remember that even in my personal life, you know, like think about what you're asking. Think about what you really want before you ask. So you were talking about photojournalists and working with photojournalists and you chose a, a different route, of course, but you also have done some photojournalism because you went to Afghanistan with Rumi Spice and I'd love to hear what motivated you to do that and what your experience was like in Afghanistan. Well, after the portrait world, I, I realized that also, in, in media in New York, if you weren't the hottest, newest thing, you know, your work would a little bit dwindle. It's a hustle. And I, I don't know, I sat down one day and I thought, wow, you know, I get to go to so many things and they bring all this food to my plate and I don't know what the food is. For example, a white truffle. I don't really know what a white, like how, where it comes from. Let me go find out. So I went and did a white truffle story. Saffron. Saffron's more expensive than gold. It's only available th about three weeks a year for one hour a day. And I thought, how can that be more expensive than gold? So I went to find out. And I got a lead from Melissa Clark that her brother was part of this organization, Rumi Spice. And it took me a very good nine to 10 months to convince them to let me go with them. And, you know, I don't do anything half-assed. I take it all a bit too seriously. That's probably another flaw. And when I was invited to tag along with this company that gets their saffron from Western Afghanistan, I prepared very, very deeply. For example, the way that we walk our Western gate is very different from the Middle East. So I Googled it. And then I, I thought, well, I can't have fancy sneakers underneath my burqa or even just my black outfit, my kurta. So I better go and see what women dress sort of similarly, similarly wear. And then I thought, well, these look really brand new. So I went into the kitchen and covered the shoes with flour. And it really made them look dusty and dirty, revolting, actually. <laughs> so the Afghanistan trip was a very challenging trip because the Taliban could not know we were there for real. And the reason why is it completely jeopardizes the company. 
because if they get a hint that there are two Westerners in the basement, they will come knocking on the door and say, give us all your money and maybe close down the business. So we were really hiding in the basement. And there was one moment we waited 10 days in this factory basement. And I mean, we had a window like Anne Frank, I felt like, which is probably inappropriate to say, but it felt very lonely and frustrating. And we were working with the women every day, actually getting the stamens out of the flowers. But I wanted to go to the fields. And they said, they were like on day nine, they said, I don't know if you guys, we can go, it's too unsafe. And I must have looked so crestfallen that the an elder who was part of the family somehow arrived the next day. They said, we're going. And he had a car full of his entire family. So he must have been 85. He had a, another very old woman. Then there were younger people, younger people. There were like 10 of us, probably not 10. There were probably one, two, three, four, five, six or seven of us in this minivan. So that when we were stopped and we were in the back with our kurta and our sunglasses on, they thought it was just a family traveling around. So we got to go to the saffron fields, which were, you know, purple is my favorite color, but that's not why I did the trip. <laughs> and were you scared? Yes. I was so scared when we first landed in Kabul because that was when it all became real. And when you looked out the window, there were no lights in the airfield or nobody's allowed to keep their lights on at night. So it just looked so dark. And that's when all of it came. My father saying, you're an idiot, don't go. I mean, he didn't say idiot, but please don't go. You know, that, that, that was the moment that it became real. And you, you brought that back. And where did you publish the pictures? I never did. So after that, I went to um, Uni. I thought, what is Uni? That was actually a scarier trip. I heard about these scientists that were in southern Peru. And they had been encouraging a local village to not overfish. I hopped on a bus and they took a video and fingerprints before you got on the bus. And I was like, kidnapping? And they, they didn't think that was funny. And I went on this bus, I went all the way down there. One of the scientists' assistants met me, got there, got to go on the fishing boat, see these, it was the first day these guys had actually got, gathered any of the sea urchin for five years. They were huge, beautiful, plush, you know, amazing looking sea urchin shells. And they turned to me and they said, you know what, you have to go back tonight. You can't stay here for the week. And I was, what? They said, it's way too dangerous. And I said, but I've just taken two airplanes, one to Miami, one to Lima, taken an eight hour bus in one day. And they said, no, you will literally get raped. You have to leave now. So I had to go back. So I had this plan to do a book that was called Food to Die For, which now sounds so tone deaf, which had my experiences both with the truffles and with the saffron and then with the uni, but the book never sold. So I have never published that work, actually. I mean, that, that is, they're all amazing stories, but it's fascinating to me that the uni trip seemed more scary in retrospect than the Taliban. And that's because the people you were with didn't have any sense that they could protect you? Yeah, I think because they weren't, this wasn't, um, you know, in, in Afghanistan, everybody knows the rules and the lines and what to do. And I mean, you go, I was so lucky because they, we had a wonderful guard in Kabul. We were staying in Acted, which was an NGO. Uh, and they, they, you know, escorted me. They, they really took, we had chase cars. I mean, they, they, it was all set up there. Whereas in Peru, in this Asito, this town, it was the Wild West. So, I mean, when I saw that hotel room when I first arrived, I, I mean, if you can call it a hotel room, 
I mean, when they said you have to go, I was so disappointed, but I didn't argue. That it sounds like a very long, long, long trip, but you got you actually got some pictures. I did. I, I really I got some beautiful, beautiful pictures, and it was an incredible moment. And it was you know you know how you try to stay out of the story, which I'm sure you do. <laughs> I I got to when they were trying to pack up all the uni. And put it, you know, I thought, okay, there are 30 guys here. You guys do not do it like this. I wanted to take control of the situation <laughs> and be like, pack them in layers of four, you know. And I actually traveled on the same bus. They put that uni on the bus that was going out. So I traveled with it back to Lima. And then I thought, well, let me go. And where's it going? And somebody said, oh, Centrale or something. So I went and had dinner the next day and... um I had the sea urchin, which cost $60 a plate, and they only made $300 for the whole bunch. So that was interesting, too. You uh, mentioned a couple of times that the contraction of the photography industry or like paid work as a photographer. If people are interested in becoming photographers and they come to you for advice, do you discourage them? Like, where do you where do you find the challenges in the industry that you're facing? And then where do you find the opportunities? I notoriously about five years ago left my husband, left my, left my photography agent, left my literary agent all in the same month. And I was all of a sudden sitting there with a business that I didn't know how to really run. And I didn't understand the, you know, the business aspect of it. That was a challenge that I really didn't feel like undertaking. <laughs> so I think, number one, you've got to understand that this is art and commerce. There's just no other way to put it. So I think understanding the business aspect, putting yourself out there, you know, informing people like, oh, there's photography for sale. People are always so surprised. Well, that's my fault for not communicating that. So I think that to understand that art meets commerce is a very important aspect. And then I think I'm most proud of the fact that I'm classically trained. And I remember walking around my Don't Play With Your Food show, which I threw myself because I couldn't get a gallery to support. Um, and I sold 33 pictures that night, which is amazing. I walked around this show that I had put on and I heard someone say something like, I can't believe she shot this all with an iPhone. And I, I said, I didn't, I, I went over and I said, oh, I didn't shoot this with an iPhone. Like I shot this with a camera. And, you know, being classically trained, understanding what you're doing. And by that, I mean doing the work. It, I can photograph food now because I understand the way light works. I understand the way exposure works. I understand the way my camera works. So I think that I support enormously people that want to take pictures and want to jump into the field, but it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a tough, tough business. And if you don't have the classical training, it's going to be even harder. How important do you think it is to have an agent to have representation. Has that been transformative for you? I think that it is not the answer. And that's a good question because a lot of the young people say, I need an agent. I mean, maybe that's even a little bit dated because today there are not even very many agents still. But I think if you can have somebody help you package yourself up and how to present yourself, that's a wonderful asset. I mean, I'm not a great editor. I was just working on a project with somebody and I said, I'm not a good editor. And she said, no, you really aren't, are you? <laughs> I think I'm too close to the work. So I think to have somebody in your orbit that can help you or that you can bounce ideas off would help. But I don't think that an agent is, is that necessary. No, I don't have one. <laughs> 
And what about the concept of bouncing ideas? So many of your great pieces that I can recall, boy, did they take a lot of work in putting it together and the ideas were big and sort of extraordinary. Are those things that the ideas bounced around in your own head or have you found collaborators where, you know, either an assistant who helps you figure out like when that idea is just right? Well, that's a, another great question because that is a new chapter for me. When I did Don't Play With Your Food Miami, I actually collaborated with a very visual, amazing friend of mine, Robert. We sort of pushed each other. And I've never really had that because I've never been part of a magazine. You know, I've, I've never had a collaborator. And I am now asking people, would you look at this idea or what do you think or and I never did that before and boy did I miss out on some good stuff (laughs) the notion of what it takes to be a visionary and a leader I feel like has evolved in a way that's very compelling Mm, absolutely I mean we have very similar parallel lives in 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 the way we work now I mean you're such a self-starter and you didn't come from that right the notion that you can take on whatever project you want and make it happen is very different from getting a job, working up the job ladder, and then finding yourself in the the top job. Like you can, at this point, anoint yourself to have the top job as long as you're willing to do the work. As you say, like when I listen to you, you know, you have ideas, you make them happen. And that's something that we can do now that probably wouldn't have been as possible earlier. Absolutely. And that came so clear to me when I was photographing. um, I went to photograph Rupi Kaur and I'm in her house. I said, oh, so you're a poet. And she said, well, I'm actually a performance artist and I'm a poet and I'm a... And I looked at her and I said, bless you. (laughs) Because people used to say to me, pick a lane stay in your lane. And I never really had a lane. I had many lanes. And I think in this new age, people do have different things going on and it's so much more acceptable. When you look ahead and think about your career and you think about your dreams, what is it that you dream of? Um, It's funny, somebody said to me, what's your five-year plan? I mean, this is before, of course, the pandemic we're in. And I thought, no, who makes a five-year plan? I never thought about that. I'm not very good at looking ahead. And I mean, my real private dream is to be able to create more and more work and less and less hustle. Do you feel like you work around the clock? No, I don't at all. I I feel, and you know, I do get inspiration from things like, yesterday I thought, I need to see what's happening in Grand Central Station. I have to see what's happening. I have to see what, and I just went went up to Grand Central Station and just seeing how empty it was and the streets and the, so I do try, I mean, in the old days, go to museums and get inspiration and look around. And I mean, I don't have children, so my boyfriend does, but they're older now. I work at all strange hours when it seizes me. And I, I don't, you know, I work a lot, but I wouldn't say that I'm an addict. How do you think people find, or how did you find the things that called to you the most? You know, I, I think about the parallel in writing, and I think how whenever I'm talking to someone who wants to be a food writer, I'm like, you have to find the thing that you know better than anyone else. But thinking about that parallel in photography, it's actually quite different. It isn't really about what you know better than anybody else, but what is it? I guess it's what you see better. I mean, it was so clear to me that these essential workers, that my doorman, the post office person, all these people that are right in front of my face. So instead of dreaming big ideas, it's see what, what, what is in front of you. It's, it's like I was saying earlier when 
I walk into a room to photograph you, I'm looking at you so hard you wouldn't even believe it. I mean, it's crazy. It's like laser observance because I'm trying to see what is there. And that's, you know, another very important idea in this pivoting world is that sometimes you go and let's say I'm coming to photograph Dana. I think, oh, well, you know, she's an editor in chief, so I'll have to think in that mindset. And I get there and you're like, oh, I left that behind years ago. So then I have to change my whole idea and be prepared to throw it out. So the flexibility is also a key. One thing that I love about your Instagram is when you bring pictures up from behind the scenes you st- and you tell the stories of how these pictures happened. Do you believe that there's a connection between memory and photography? Absolutely. I can tell you, I'm looking right now at the cover of My Last Supper 1 with Eric Repair, and I can remember vividly that Mandy Ozer was standing to the right and she was holding the uh, Tupperware full of white truffle with buried in rice. To my left was a photo assistant. To my right was somebody that I said, oh, put your fingers in the glass and um, I want the the tablecloth to look messy. And I think that's why I'm not a good editor because all I remember when I look at my photographs is my feelings and the moment. I remember like Rain Man, it's very weird. (laughs) What a waste of my brain space. I think it's fantastic. And I have the opposite. Like, I remember all emotion and no specifics. So I can tell you what it felt like that day, but I couldn't tell you the color of the sky or the color of the steps. I wish I had a Rain Man type of memory. Do you think that's part of what made you a photographer? I I don't know. I think I was just drawn to it and drawn to it as a medium for communicating. And Lord knows I talk a lot. So at least there there was something quiet that I could do. You're a fantastic connector. We were at an event together and you were with Sylvia Weinstock, who is a grand dame in the food world, best known for switching careers quite late and doing the most extravagant, beautiful wedding cakes. How do you connect with these people who, I mean, they're like you, but they're really not like you at all? I I guess there's a commonality in the sense that we've all done our time. We've all worked hard and we're passionate, passionate about our vision. And that's exciting to be around. My pet theory for you is that as a photographer and as an activist, you're really a caretaker of spirit. So in the photographs, you're trying to take care of people's spirits. Like you want to honor that. And in the work like Treats Help, you're honoring the workers and what they want to do. And that makes friendships with people across all kinds of boundaries possible because you're really trying to take care of their spirit. And I think that's what makes the connection very special and this notion of also being present when you're there because you also give yourself enough time to not be present, not be around people all the time. That's like the nicest thing anyone has ever said. And can we send that straight to my funeral? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cry on air, people. (laughs) At the end of Speaking Broadly, I always ask two questions. One is, is there a product or an ingredient that you believe is extraordinary and better than the hype? I do have this really wonderful cookbook my mother gave me years ago from her bookstore, and it's called Basic. And every ingredient is listed in alphabetical order. And not being, you know, a natural cook, I love to cook, but not being a natural and being out on the beat a lot like you are, I love to just thumb through this old 
crusty, dripped all over book and look up asparagus or artichoke. And it says, to use, to buy, to store, to cook. (laughs) That saved me many, many times. What I love about that, first of all, you have had access to and have probably seen every single cookbook that has come out in the last you know, 10 years. <laughs> and also that at this moment, we're getting back to a time of essentials. What you're doing is you're helping essential workers with Treats Help. And here, you're really going back to the essentials again, which is a, a beautiful thing. Um, the last question is a shout out broadly. So a woman in the world of food or hospitality who you think has been transformative and more people need to know about her. My friend Patty Rockenwagner inspires me so much. She used to be in the corporate world and the movie worlds. And then she's married to a chef who has a bakery in Los Angeles called Rockenwagner. And Patty had the idea to take over this little restaurant that was closing and make it into a fun Frank Sinatra supper club called Dear John's. And with the whole pandemic, the Rock and Wagners have managed to not only completely change their business from delivering bread to basically all of Los Angeles, but they've partnered with local farms and they have managed to have all their bakers now become drivers. Nobody has been laid off. They have made TV dinners at Dear John's to keep the Dear John's staff on. And her ability to both have ideas and make them happen is just awe-inspiring. She sounds a little bit like you. Thank you so much, um, Melanie, for joining me today on Speaking Broadly. I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate what you're doing during COVID, helping frontline workers, making their day a little bit brighter. Um, I hope for all of you listening that this conversation made your day a little bit brighter, and I look forward to being back next week in your ears. If you like what you hear, please go rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Just helps get the word out, and have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.